You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We, uh, we've been looking at how to grow as a leader, and we're not talking about any kind of leader. We're talking in particular about the, the kind of leader that uh, is pleasing to God. And so our definition of leadership fits that goal, and this has been our definition of leadership. It is the power to influence others for good. So you may not have a formal position of leadership, but we all can influence others for good. And that way, we all have a leadership responsibility. Now, it turns out that influence is a function largely of who we are on the inside. Even if we do have a formal position, that influence may rise or fall depending on who we really are on the inside. And that way, leaders are kind of like an iceberg. And influence is the part of the iceberg that we see. It's, it's above the waterline. But 90% of what drives a leader's impact and influence over time occurs below the waterline. And that's what we've been looking at. We've been considering four invisible components that tend to drive a leader to have tremendous influence for good in the lives of other people. We began with the foundation, which is loving integrity. Good leaders love, which means they live their lives for something bigger than them. The other thing that's true of good leaders is they have integrity, which means that to them, the truth is bigger than them also. They submit to the truth. They don't make up the truth to fit their own goals. Next, we looked at the initiative component. Good leaders solve problems. They take the initiative. Bad leaders avoid problems. They wait for problems to magically solve themselves. Then last week, we looked at the listening component. Good leaders care about the people around them, and they listen to others before they make their decisions, before they pronounce their judgments. Today we conclude this series with looking at the limits of leadership. Good leaders understand their limits, the limits of their authority. In a sense, they stick to their jurisdictions. They don't go beyond their jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is the word that we use to define the, the borders, the particular limits of an authority. Maybe the limits of a city, the border of a nation, those define jurisdictions. The word jurisdiction is a compound word, which means there's two words to it. Juris, which means right, and diction, which means to speak. So jurisdiction simply means the right to speak. If you're operating in your jurisdiction, you have the right to speak. If you're outside of your jurisdiction, you don't have the right to speak. And leaders understand where the borders are. When we were building the new kids building last year, the city sent inspectors to investigate and look at the quality of the construction and sign off on different aspects of the construction. They had the right to speak. The, this building is inside the city limits of Huntington Beach, and so an inspector from the building department of this city came and signed off on a piece of paper. They had the right to speak. I had a thought, but I didn't have the right to speak. That was not my jurisdiction. And that provides for protection for us so that the buildings in this city are built within the right codes to provide for safety. Now, jurisdictions don't just show up on maps. They are present in every kind of leadership, really in every relationship. Every leader has a border that defines the limits of their leadership. It clarifies what they're responsible for and what they are not responsible for. Good leaders honor the borders of these jurisdictions and they stay within their limits. Bad leaders, they ignore the borders and they try to expand their power out beyond the limits that have been established for them. Now, what's obvious when someone like Putin violates the borders of a nation like Ukraine and invades? 
But it's less obvious when everyday leaders like you and me do something like that. And that's because we, of course, don't invade with something as visible as tanks and bombs. We invade with words and emotions. And the borders of leadership don't always show up on a map. And so it's, it's, it's kind of hard to find a clearly marked border crossing to let you know you're about to get outside of your jurisdiction. But the invisible borders of leadership are every bit as real as the borders between nations. The conflicts that arise out of these cross-border incursions, these invasions, they bring about a destruction of their own. They destroy relationships. They destroy people. They destroy organizations. So we're going to use um, an illustration, a circle, to illustrate the borders of our jurisdiction. If you're taking notes um, with paper and ink, on the back of that uh, message outline, you'll find a blank page. You can take, uh, you can draw this illustration there if you want. If not, it's okay. It's a pretty simple illustration. You should be able to remember it. Inside this circle is what we are responsible for. This is the circle of responsibility. We all have one. There are some things that we're responsible for. The word responsible is another one of those compound words. It's made up of two words, response and able. To be responsible means you are able to respond. You can do something about this. This is your responsibility. No matter what's going on around you, you have the power. You have the ability to say and do something about this. So what exactly is inside the circle of responsibility? Well, first and most importantly, you are. You're inside your own circle of responsibility. What that means is you have been given the power from God to choose what you're going to think about. You can choose your emotions. It may not feel like it, but you really can. And you can choose what you're going to say, and you can choose what you're going to do. You have the power over you. That's why you're responsible for you, because you are able to respond. You're not a victim. You are a responsible person. So you are inside the circle of responsibility. The next thing that's inside the circle of responsibility are your assignments. Your assignments from God. If you're a parent and you have young children at home that you're raising, they are a part of your responsibility. They're inside your circle of responsibility. Now, this is a unique relationship because your goal is to launch them outside of your circle of responsibility so that they might establish their own circle of responsibility. So inside the circle of responsibility, you're teaching them how to think and what is right and how to respond to powerful emotions so that they might learn how to rule over themselves and become responsible adults. So if you're a parent, your kids are part of your assignment. If you have a job, that's part of your assignment. In the Bible, work is not just something we do because we have to to pay the bills. Work is a noble endeavor. It's a part of how we bring good and flourishing into this world and into the lives of other people. So your, your job is not something you have to do tomorrow. It's, it's an assignment from God. You have responsibility in that area. We all have gifts and abilities. Those also inform us of some of our assignments. God doesn't give us abilities and gifts just so that we can spend them on ourselves. He gives us gifts so that we might bless other people. And that informs us of some of our assignments. 
So inside the circle is you and your assignments. But there's a big limit to your assignment. There's one big thing that's missing from this circle that we wish was in the circle, and that is other people. We would love it if we could just run other people's lives and not ours. But that's not the way God set it up. One of the things that leaders struggle with is because they have influence, especially if they have a formal position, they have influence. And they get accustomed to people doing what they tell them to do. And so it's tempting for a leader to kind of conflagate the idea of influence and go beyond the border and begin to try to control people. We have influence on other people, but we do not have control over other people. So your assignment may be to lead some people, maybe in a work environment. But even if you're over them in authority, in a formal way, you still cannot control their thoughts. You cannot control their emotions. You can't control what they say. You can't even control what they do. This is why leadership is such a challenge. They have jurisdiction over themselves, just like you have jurisdiction over yourself. Now, if you're in formal leadership, you can tell them what to do, but they, especially in that area of work, but they have the power to decide whether they're going to do it or not. And as a leader, you can bring consequences if they don't do it and rewards if they do, but that doesn't make them do it. They still have to decide. And so this introduces us to the larger circle that surrounds the circle of responsibility. This is called the circle of concern. This is where everybody that impacts our lives that we have no control over live. We don't control anyone in this circle, but we're really concerned about everyone in this circle because of the impact they can have on our lives, both for good or for bad. Now, if the border between the circle of responsibility and the circle of concern, what we do and what other people do, if that border was impenetrable, if it was a steel, solid border, then we could do whatever we want to do, and other people could do whatever they want to do, and it wouldn't bother anybody. It wouldn't affect anyone. But the border is not impenetrable. It is porous. It has holes. And what that means is what I do impacts other people. What they do impacts me. And this is why we struggle with this border. And one of the things we do is we, we try to violate the border of our responsibility. And we tend to do this in two ways. We either try to expand our responsibility, become over-responsible, or we shrink our responsibility and become irresponsible. So first thing we try to do sometimes is we expand. We expand the border of our responsibility when we begin to take responsibility for what other people do and say. This happens all the time. Why would we want to take on the burden of what other people do and say? I mean, we've got enough work of our own, right? I mean, just running our own lives, managing our own thoughts, our own emotions, our own actions, that's a full-time job. So why would we want to expand the border and take responsibility for someone else? The main reason is because if we can control somebody else, that person suddenly becomes safer. If we have no control over them, they are a loose cannon. And they might crash into us, and they might do us tremendous damage. And if we're married to them, they can make our lives really awful. 
So we try to expand the border of our responsibility to make our world safer than it really is. Because if we can control someone else, then our life would be easier. So we take the influence that we do have on other people, and we try to power it up and elevate it so that we can rule over them. But this never works. It always backfires because the border is a real one. And people do not like, generally don't like being controlled. I don't like being controlled. You don't like being controlled. You try to control someone else, they will let you know you have just crossed the line. It's a personal invasion of their responsibility. So sometimes we don't do it verbally or aggressively. Sometimes we do it emotionally. Sometimes we take emotional responsibility for what others do and say. We blame ourselves for what they do. Now, we may have had an impact. We may be a part of it. But we go beyond that. We go beyond, you know, seeing how we've influenced, and we begin to own what someone else does. We begin to feel guilt and blame for what other people do. Parents struggle with this a whole lot, especially parents in my stage where the kids have moved out. I hear this from parents of teens and above all the time. They talk about how they should have done a better job as parents. And what I've learned is if you're a parent and you're looking back on your parenting and you're asking, could we have done a better job? The answer is always, yes, of course. I mean, it doesn't take very long for my wife and I to look back at all kinds of years and say, yeah, we should have done that a little different, or man, if we'd known this, we would have done that, or that was a mistake. God, by his kindness and grace, has allowed our own two children to take responsibility for themselves and grow. But we can look back on our parenting like anyone can and say, yeah, if we'd only done a better job. But if we wallow in that emotional over-responsibility, it implies that we have more control than we really do. Everyone grows up to be responsible for themselves, even our kids. So that's the expanding challenge. The other way we try to move the board of responsibility is we try to shrink it. So depending on your personality and wiring, you're going to become a over-responsible person or an irresponsible person as you wrestle with this border. These will be your temptations. The over-responsible person, you can usually tell them, you can just, you can look at them. They are freaked out all the time. I mean, they are stressed because they have so many lives that they're running. That's a stressful job. So you can just look at them and say, I mean, you may be wrong, but, and don't say this out loud, but they may be over-responsible. The, uh, the shrinking border person, nothing phases them. They're irresponsible. What they tend to do is they blame others for what is happening. And therefore, they don't have to do as much. It's this person's fault. It's that person's This thing happened in the economy. That thing happened. So they, they're lazy. Now, what's interesting, what often happens is that an expanding border person finds a shrinking border person, and they form a border treaty. <laughs> they come up with an agreement. 
Now, it's never written down, but it's clearly understood. The treaty, if I put it in words, would be something like this. The shrinking border person says to the expanding border person, I'll let you run my life if you'll pay for it, if you'll do all the work. I'll let you control me in exchange for me not having to do anything. And amazingly, a lot of people work that way. It's a stressful, awful way to live. The term for this, you may be aware of this term, it's codependency. That's what, that's what this agreement is. But the best way to increase your influence in another person's life is to focus your attention on the one thing you do have control over, and that is you. So good leaders don't try to run other people's lives. They run their lives. They keep getting back inside the border of their responsibility, and they become more and more responsible. But this is a challenge. And so we all tend to violate the jurisdiction of our own responsibility. And usually we, we make these mistakes in three ways. Remember, again, jurisdiction is the right to speak. So I want to look at the three ways we tend to ignore the jurisdiction that God has placed around our lives and around other people's lives. The first way is you have the right to speak, but you aren't. So this occurs inside the circle of your responsibility. You have the right to speak, the right to do something, but you're not taking action. You're not saying anything. You're being irresponsible. Here's how it normally goes. There's a problem that arises. It's going on in your life or maybe with your assignment. But you say nothing and do nothing to address it. Why? Usually there's two reasons. Reason number one is you don't know what to do which is fair because life is complex and you don't really know what to do, how to solve this problem. The second reason is you don't know what they will do. You don't know how other people are going to respond to what you do. So the first is an action question. The second is a reaction question. The first question is, what action should I take? The second question is, how are people going to respond or react to this? And it's because of that people don't act. Now, you can find an answer to the first question. But it's almost impossible to come up with an answer to the second question, how people are going to react. You can guess, and that may be okay to do, but you don't know. The reason you can get clarity on the first question is because the first question exists where? Inside the circle of your responsibility. That means you're able to do something. The second question is in the second circle, not your circle. And God wants us to be very clear about what we should do. He wants us to do what is right. So if you are serious, you can find answers to the what should I do now question. You're going to have to work. It's going to take some time, but you can get clarity on that. But the what will they do question because that's not in your circle, there's not much clarity that you'll get on that one. So how do we get an answer for the what should I do question? God invites us very simply to ask him for wisdom. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, and I find myself raising my hand, yep, right here, lacking wisdom, 
not sure what to do next. You should ask God then, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is a double-minded and such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So let's go back to the beginning. Anybody like wisdom? We like wisdom. Well, what should we do? Well, God says, ask me. Ask me for wisdom. And when we ask, he loves to give insight and wisdom. He's not shaking his head, head saying, when, is, when are they just going to understand and just do it? No, he understands we don't know. The Bible is a whole book full of wisdom. The longer I read this, the more amazed I am at how it absolutely nails reality in people. It's so accurate. So as we read it, and as we ask him for wisdom, we get wisdom. He gives it. But when we ask, we are told there is one problem that will get in the way of us getting clarity from God, and that is if we doubt. Doubt about what? I used to think when I was younger, what this meant is that you had to believe that God would tell you insight. And so I would ask for wisdom, and then I would kind of, and I really believe, I believe, I believe that you're going to give it to me, because I didn't want him to not give me wisdom. But that's not what this verse is talking about. We're not, we don't struggle with doubt about whether God will give us wisdom or not. If we did, we wouldn't ask him. If you've never asked God for wisdom, it's because you don't think he'll give wisdom. But if you're asking God for wisdom, you've already crossed that hurdle, and you believe he can give wisdom. That's why you're asking. Why, why else would you ask? Now, the doubt this is talking about is not whether God will give you wisdom, but whether having given you wisdom, you will do it. That's where we struggle. Now, why wouldn't you do it? God gives wisdom for inside our circle of responsibility, not outside. That's why. So he turns the light on in circle one. But what we're most concerned about is what's going to happen in circle two? And we don't know. So we doubt. God says, this is what you need to do next. This is what you need to say next. And immediately we can think, well, this person may not like that, or this person's not going to enjoy that, or this person's going to get upset about that, and we doubt. Are we going to do it or not? So what we doubt is not that God has something to say about what we should do, but what will happen if we do it. And that's because we are concerned about much more than we are responsible for. In order to obey God, we have to trust him enough with the outer circle to, to obey him in the inner circle. Let me say that again. It's so important to understand. In order to obey God in the inner circle, we have to trust God with the outer circle. And that is a challenge. If we ask God for wisdom, but we're really not sure he can be trusted, then we're going to be of two minds. We're going to be double-minded. This is a challenge we all face. We have a mind for each circle. One mind asks, well, what's the right thing for me to do? And then the second mind comes along and says, well, you know, if you do that, this might happen. That's not going to be good. That's why it says a double-minded person is unstable in all they do. 
What that means is you never know what they're going to do because you never know which of the two minds is going to win the day. And in that way, James says, that person is like a wave of the sea. A wave of the sea is not very stable. What is it that drives the waves that crash on our beaches? It comes from weather systems sometimes thousands of miles away on the other side of the Pacific. So circumstances at a great distance cause the waves up close. And it's the same way with a double-minded person. They are always concerned about something at a distance rather than what God wants them to do right now. For example, one of the things that we, we get into if we're on the over-responsible, the expanding border side of things, is we take on the job of fixing people. Now, we don't do this because we're just generous people, but because if this person could get fixed, then our life would be easier. So we get out our people fixing ratchet wrenches, and we go to work. The problem is, fixing people is God's problem, not ours. It's our concern, but not our responsibility. We are not able to do that. If someone else is God's problem, then they're, and they're causing us a problem, then what's the one thing we have to figure out? What does God want me to do now? That's all. That's it. Now, it may be hard to figure that out, but that's doable. But if they are our problem, then not only do we have to figure out what we should do, but we have to figure out how they might respond to that, and then what we would do next, and how they might respond to that. We have to run out so many scenarios it's going to take up all of our brain space and more. Because people aren't, are unpredictable, circle two tends to get far more thought than circle one. You will spend more time on what you have no power to control and too little time on the power that you do have. And your influence will go down. This verse, this James verse, you know, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, this was my go-to verse for the last two years. I don't know how many COVID decisions we had to make here at Seabreeze. I mean, you, those of you in leadership, you know. I mean, it got to the point on Monday, it was like, all right, let's just list the COVID decisions we got to make this week. And so I would regularly say, God, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Now, I was comforted by the fact that it appeared nobody knew what to do. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm not uniquely an idiot. No one knows what to do with this. So I just went to God and said, God, what should we do with this? How about this? Should we do this? Should we not do this as a church? And you know, without fail, God would give clarity. Sometimes as I'd get advice from others, sometimes as I'd hear some of you, but often as I just cried out to God and said, God, what should we do? Things would become clear. That wasn't the hard part. The hard part was doing it. Why? Well, because we know this, for every COVID decision, everybody responded with every COVID decision with, that sounds good, I'm willing to do that. No. <laughs> Everyone, the, you know, whatever decision we would make, there would be some people who would disagree. And no one held their COVID decisions loosely. Every COVID decision was held in extreme anger. <laughs> so for me as a leader it was like okay 
I just got to stop thinking about circle two. I got to focus on circle one so I can figure out what God wants me to do. And circle two, God's going to deal with that. People are going to do what they're going to do. But this was my go-to verse. And I learned what I doubted was not what we should do, but how are people going to respond to what we're going to do. So that's the first challenge. You have the right to speak, but you aren't. Second challenge is you're speaking, but you don't have the right to. This addresses the second circle, the circle of concern. You're crossing the border. You're invading someone else's life. Now, there are no visible fences marking the border between our responsibility and our concern. So, in God's kindness, he has installed an emotional alarm that goes off whenever we cross the border. The border crossing alarm is anger. Not in every case. There's sometimes you can be angry and be justly angry. But almost always, anger is an indication. It's like a border crossing alarm is going off. Uh-oh, get back in your circle of responsibility. Either someone's crossed into your circle or you've crossed into theirs and they're angry. If you're angry, it's usually because you're trying to increase your power in an area where you don't have power. You're trying to make up for what you lack in power by increasing your volume, either actually your verbal volume or your emotional volume. That's what anger does. So I have a question for you. If you're angry right now, or if you're not, think of the last time you were angry. Hopefully you don't have to go back too far. But let me ask you this question about what you're angry about. What would have to happen in order for you to stop being angry? I can't read minds, but I'm going to guess the first two words that entered your mind. I would stop being angry. Here are the two words. If they. <laughs> now, the reason I am able to guess that is because those are the first two words that always come to mind when I'm angry. If they would just do this, I could stop being angry. If they would stop doing that, if they hadn't given me that look, or if they hadn't said that, I'd be okay. And in a sense, we have a point. I mean, we're, we're going along, minding our own business, and then someone does something or says something, and now all of a sudden we're angry. We wouldn't have been angry if they hadn't done it. That's why we say, they made me mad. And it sure looks and it sure feels like this but it's not true. And it's, it's taken me a long time to become convinced of this. If it's true that that person made you angry, what that means is you have just given them all the power in your life. And you have just said, here's a leash, put it around my neck, and anytime you jerk it, I'll come running in anger. I have no responsibility for myself. I surrender my emotions, my thoughts, my life to you. You, I give the secret code to my heart, and you can make me dance in anger and do a jig anytime you want. That is not how God has made us. That's our decision if we choose to do that. Jesus said this about the normal approach that we have in this area of anger and enemies. In Matthew 5, 43 through 44, he says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He starts out by saying, you've heard it said. What he's saying is, this is the conventional wisdom out there. If someone loves you, you love them. 
If someone treats you wrong, you hate them. And Jesus is saying, I have a different way. Because that way basically gives them the power over your life. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies. Well, that sounds impossible. Now, just to be clear, Jesus does not command the impossible. The very difficult, yes, but not the impossible. This means that we have the ability to choose a course of action that is independent from the way people treat us. How? We've got to get back inside our circle. It requires a break, not from them, but from the emotional attachment to whatever they do. The first recorded conflict was, was not only a family conflict, it was also a leadership conflict. And that conflict ended in murder. Cain killed his younger brother, Abel. In the ancient world, birth order was not just an interesting fact, it was a hierarchy in the family, and it affected the future. Before this act of hatred, Cain, the older brother, is approached by God, and God warns him in this area. This is what he says. This is Genesis 4, 6 through 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. And here's the circle of responsibility statement, but you must rule over it. You can do this, Cain. Why are you angry? We, we know some from the story, but not enough to explain the anger. It seems kind of out of place. So we don't know all of what was going on. It was probably something Abel said or did. You know how brothers can push each other's buttons. But that's not the issue. So God doesn't even wait for an answer. He asks, why are you angry? He doesn't wait for the answer. He goes straight to the issue. The issue is, Cain, are you going to do what is right? Never mind what your brother did. Are you going to do what's right? Sin wants to dominate you, Cain. But you don't have to let it. You can rule over it. That's the kind of power that God has given each one of us. Now, this is not just a pep talk from God. This is a very important explanation about what we do and do not have power over in our lives. Cain, you control you. Abel controls Abel. You may be his older brother. You may be in a position of authority. But you are not in a position of control. If you don't get back inside your circle of responsibility, you're going to lose the entire circle. You're going to lose self-control. Now, if you're a parent or a boss, you have the right to give directions, set boundaries, establish rewards, consequences for those under your leadership. And as I've said, as a leader, you, you can have the power to influence, but you do not have the power to control people. So are we just supposed to watch those in our circle of concern and say nothing? No. This brings us to the third point. You're not speaking to the right one. What does Jesus say we are to do with our enemies? We are to pray for those who persecute you. Why? The only one whose jurisdiction extends to everyone's circle of concern is God's. That person is outside of my jurisdiction, but not outside of God's jurisdiction. Our anger has no power to affect change in our circle of concern. In fact, it's actually counterproductive. You try to invade someone else's life with anger, whatever you wanted change to occur, you've just ruined. They're not going to do it now. But our prayers are powerful. 
because they affect the one who has the power to affect everything. And when we turn our concerns into prayer, we are speaking to the one who has far more power than us to affect change. It's actually the best use of our voice. Prayer is the one shortcut to influence. We've been talking about influence and the four big pieces uh, below the waterline that drives the influence of a person. And these four elements of character, they all take time. But prayer is an instant bypass to the one who has ultimate influence, to God. So what I've learned is if I'm angry, that's usually a great invitation for me to pray. There's a lot that we don't control, but there are two things that we can always do. Number one, we can always ask God for wisdom and then act on it. You may be in the mess of all messes, but you this afternoon can get on your knees before God and say, God, I lack wisdom. Could you show me the next step to take? And God will show you. And then you can do that. And the other thing you can do is you can always say no to anger and yes to prayer. I've learned to take the list of people I'm angry with and make that a prayer list. Much more productive than anger. So in the inner circle, the need is obedience inside the circle of responsibility. In the outer circle, the need is trust. In both circles, the need is prayer. So let's pray. Father, so much of our emotion and our words and our time is wasted trying to manage and control other people. We confess that we spend far too little time coming before you with our responsibilities and saying, God, could you help us figure out what to do next? We need wisdom. I pray for all of the problems and the the tangledness that is represented in this room because that's just the way life is. I pray, God, that you would give each individual here clarity in the coming days about the next thing that you want them to do and then give them the courage to trust you and take that step. Help us to stay inside the circle of responsibility that you have assigned to us. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.